need a bigger boat. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Life, uh, finds a way. Welcome back to Spielberg Chronologically. This is the podcast for myself, Jeff, and Eric. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. What we do is we go through every single one of Spielberg's movies in chronological order. And, um, well, I feel like this is, I think we're past the, the last week's episode was the halfway point, but I think this is truly the halfway point. Like, having watched this film and as we review it, the Everything after this, I think, is just downhill. Not in terms of quality, but the ease at which we have to go about watching and reviewing things. I think yeah. this is this yeah. is the precipice. I mean, I think there are some some more challenging films coming up that uh, will spawn some interesting and good conversation, uh, thematically and subject wise. Yeah, but, Amistad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, I think that this is probably uh, before the podcast. You said like uh, you felt like we were climbing a mountain this week. Uh, yeah, I think like this is probably the most difficult uh, subject-wise film to to wrestle with. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely see it. Like if you were looking at this podcast. We're at the top of the hill. I think I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm fairly certain, too, this is his longest film. I believe that is probably true. Because I was reading I online. Look- uh, I was reading online that initially there was a uh, I think it was eight hour cut of this film. Um, don't want uh, do what I would. I would watch that. I don't want. Eight hours? That's <laughs> yeah. a miniseries. It is a miniseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, initially, the script was miniseries length, and then, you know, they kind of cut it down, cut it down, cut it down uh, to the uh, sharp-edged knife that yeah. it is now. Yeah, he has some long ones still. The two hour and 44 minutes for Munich. Um, I mean, I two and a half seen. hours is fine to me. Like I that, But it's still kind of long. Like, Lincoln is two and a half hours. But I think this one... Uh, at three hours and 15 minutes takes the cake as one of the longest films I've watched for a podcast. Yeah. Uh, you, when we were texting, um, and just so people know, we do not discuss these films ahead of time. We save it right. all for the podcast. Uh, but we, we did text just to kind of say, Hey, are you ready for this tomorrow? And so on. And you mentioned that you watched it in one sitting. Woo. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> yeah. So, I won't. It's tough to have negative things to say about Schindler's List, but I do have this to say: it can be a slog. Like it is slow goings at points, and then there are parts. You know, it's all wrapped around all this important history and imagery, and but it, boy, sometimes it can be really tough to get through and not just because of the subject matter although there are those moments as well i but, have i have not had that experience and maybe it's because this time i watched it uh in two sittings uh, yeah we watched half of it one night and half of it the next night so we watched it miniseries style um but 
the initial times that I saw it, I did watch it in one sitting and uh, I find it just uh, enrapturing. I don't, I don't, I don't know the word. I like it pulls me into its spell very mm-hmm. much uh, similar to like, as far as a movie with a length that I can really get into and not really feel the time pass like Titanic. Like I, I I'll sit there and watch all the Titanic, you know, and not really feel the length of it. And yeah. uh, that's that's how I felt about this. I haven't too. seen that in years. I think I've only ever watched Titanic once and only have watched this once except for now. You know, now I've watched it twice. So but, what, um, what was the first time you watched it? I was in high school. I I I remember seeing it all. And I want to say they even showed it in high school Jesus. like to us, like in history or whatever. Um, I get that. Like, I think that's the, like a great thing to do in a history class and in like almost an important thing to do in a history class but did they send home like permission slips or something i i have to think they had to have i can't recall that and i may my i may be misremembering but i don't know that as a i was a teenager when i saw this um and i don't think i would have sat down to watch this without being in school and the option of watching a movie is better than doing school you know what i mean like as yeah. a teenager i'm not gonna watch i'm not gonna watch Sindler's list i'm just i'm not gonna do it voluntarily uh but if i'm at school and i get the choice between doing schoolwork and watching Sindler's list that's easy um or really just about any other film um i watched the elephant man in school like i remember watching weird stuff in school elephant man um I feel like there's some other things, Scrapes of Wrath, uh, things like that. But, and I didn't watch it again because I, you know, it, it's it's a heavy movie and you have to be in a particular place. And while I found parts of it to be like, whew, okay, where can we trim fat here? I still think that at the end of the day, it's a masterpiece. It's magnificent. There are some performances in this film that are the best performances in any film i'm yes yeah, ben I kingsley and ray fines to me they just destroy their role like they smash it so hard that and i like liam neeson but i think i wouldn't say he's the weakest point but between ray fines ben kingsley and liam neeson he's coming up short in this movie as far as his ability to carry things. And he's still great. He's just out. Ray Fiennes is crazy good in this movie. And Ben Kingsley has to do such a reserved performance. And does it so well. And the character of Itzhak Stern is so. Uh, like you want to root for him so much. Like he's always on. The right side of things to me. You know. You the only time he's not is near the end and it's not even that he's on the bad side he's like he's actually still trying to do business he's like none of our bullets are working and you know Schindler is like yeah duh (laughs) and he shakes his head you know um I I, there are some things about this that still blow my mind and I think oh and I don't want to start off negative I don't I just think it's a little long in the tooth for me That being said, it's great and visually a brilliant. I, I'm not sure, and maybe you looked into this, why he chose black and white. Um, but 
it is really wonderful to look at. There are moments that really remind me of Hitchcock, some of the cinematography. Oh, my God. The, the early shot, portions. The shot where there's one shot in my mind that this, like, I saw it and was like, oh, that is so good. The shot where the young woman comes to visit him to ask for her parents to be saved, and she's at the bottom of the stairs, and then you see the long stairwell, and he's like this tiny figure, and he walks out and looks at her and then goes back in, and then he rejects her because she's not pretty, and so she dolls herself up and comes back. Uh, that, That shot is so tremendous, and it's it's just a small moment in the film, but like it really like the cinematography of it and it's so crisp and so cool and so almost noirish uh yeah the the black and white photography in this movie is at times just jaw dropping like so so good the one that really hit me the most was actually right at the beginning of the film where the camera's behind oscar schindler as he's going into the um restaurant at the beginning or wherever that is that ball or party where you get introduced to him and the camera's behind him, and everything is just kind of done in this way that felt very Hitchcockian to me. Um, but uh, yeah, visually it's stunning. Acting, it's near flawless. Yeah, it is. It is really tremendous. And you know, I think for anybody that might be like listening to our podcast for the first time, we're we're not like film studies guys. We're just fans of films, uh, and I would say that we are fans of Spielberg. But mm-hmm. we we don't we don't cut him any slack. Like there More are so movies than Hitchcock. There are movies <laughs> that we really don't like, you know, as individuals and collectively. And nineteen forty one. And we will bash the hell out of a movie if we don't like it. Even even you know while respecting the man and his body of work, we're not we're not gonna you know we're, we're gonna up give him shit where shit is warranted. Uh, that said, this movie is like amazing. Like like otherworldly good um like okay so i first saw this movie uh i was probably in my mid-20s did not catch it at the theater i was old enough to go see it at the theater but i did not go see it at the theater um no real reason why it just seemed like a heavy thing to devote an afternoon to (laughs) what's interesting to me for you is like (laughs) of course um you're older than me but I don't remember being into like directors as a high schooler, you know, like, Ooh, the new Spielberg, the new Cameron, whoever I was into actors, right? I was, Ooh, the new Val Kilmer. I loved Val Kilmer and Van Damme, you know, like those were my guys. I'm going to go see those. But you at least, I believe at this point were like, Ooh, Spielberg. I got to go watch Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. I was in, in, and so I just, I think this is just something that I just didn't get to, you know? Um, and so, uh, at the time I was really into like buying VHS tapes and there, uh, when this was released, there was a letterboxed version that came out and, and anything that was released letterbox, I immediately went right for, it was a big deal then. now everything is widescreen, but back then it was more of a rarity to get letterboxed. You remember when DVDs would come out and you had the option? Yeah, exactly. Full screen or, and then people would be like, oh, I want full screen. I don't want anything cut off. I'm like, Oh you're, you don't get it. You don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> same. Yeah. Same. Uh, so anyhow, so I, I bought it. Uh, I bought it letterbox and watched it for the first time on video. And uh, it was just like enthralled with the film. Um, I probably watched it three or four times on that VHS, but then I kind of put it away, you know, and I haven't seen it since. So it's been 
a good 20, 25 years since I've seen this movie. Um, and there was a lot that I had forgotten about the movie. And, mm-hmm. and full disclosure, I used to drink like a lot. And one of my favorite activities was to drink and watch movies. <laughs> I would drink beer. Like Schindler's List? I would sit down with a bunch of beer and watch Schindler's List. Yeah, totally. Whatever. It didn't matter. So I would say like... I may have never seen the second half of this movie sober. sober. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because three hours is a lot of time to get some drinking done. It is. It is. Uh, so there there was a lot about this film that I had forgotten, a lot that maybe I misread the first time um, because I was definitely probably watching it on a very surface level. Um, so, like, I had, I had forgotten what the journey of the Schindler character, you know, like I had forgotten that he starts out and really for, for most of the film is just a big opportunist. Like he's a war profiteer and he's super selfish and he's just out for himself. And he doesn't, he doesn't come into the film with any sort of good intentions. Like he's there to make money period, you know, and, and he's very thoughtless and careless and out of touch with what's going on, uh, you know, in the, in the Krakow ghetto and what's happening with the Jewish people. And moreover kind of doesn't care, you know, like, I actually think he does care, but only because that makes Jewish people very cheap to employ. Right. Right. For him, it's, it's all about the money and, and how he can like kind of squeeze this opportunity. And he's really, a con man and he never stops being a con man you know like he comes in with a lot of confidence he seduces the nazis with gifts and alcohol and money and bribes and you know just kind of like wins his way into their inner circle and glad hands them the entire movie and even i mean at first it's it's just for his own advantage like he's mm-hmm. he's been trying his whole life to get rich and this is his chance he's going to get rich like he says it to his wife there's something different this time it's war you know like i've got this war well, she goes advantage of. luck he goes no war you yeah. know and it's very deliberately saying he is profiting off of what we know now is the worst human atrocity you know ever i think What's interesting too, watching this movie that I noticed this time is that they don't really know how bad this is going to be at the beginning, right? No. And I don't think Schindler does. I don't think the Jewish people in the film do. There's like, there is a scene at like uh, a church with Schindler's there and then like three other guys. And I think only one of them is actually Jewish. And there's points where his friends are like poking fun at him because he's in that line where he's got to register. You know, and he's like, ah, look at him. He's got to register, you know, and they're very like lighthearted about it because I don't think they know where this is going yet. You know? Yeah. I, one one thing the movie is great at showing is the incremental escalation, you know, uh, and and it's so great because like there this isn't a movie just about the Holocaust. It's about these characters and what happens with them in the Holocaust. It's, it's telling a story about these specific people, but the movie takes time within that context to kind of pull away and show these, these things that are happening. And, and it brilliantly establishes probably 15 or 20 side characters 
just faces that you recognize as they're going through step by step of this systemic dehumanization and then ultimate murder um being shuffled about by this massive unthinkable bureaucracy you know and and so uh yeah it, it, it's it's just really interesting in the way that it just slowly elevates like first you got to come register right and all these people are coming in from the countryside not even necessarily afraid you know like yeah. it, it makes a point of showing like all this of is their a pain in the ass but you know yeah there's, it shows all of their faces in close up and really like humanizes everybody as they like are saying their names and getting checked off the list. But then, okay, now you guys have to move into the ghetto and you know, it's heinous. It's the worst. And they think that it's like, this is as bad as it's going to get. This is the worst. But then, you know, the transition to the work camp, you know? And- yeah. There's even the scene where the, the couple moves into one of the apartments and um, the wife says it could be worse. And he throws his luggage down. So how can it be worse than this? And it's like a precursor as, as a viewer of the film. You're like, buddy, <laughs> it's going to get worse than this. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, I think that that scene is really great because it has this kind of like this editing that shows them being evicted from their apartment. And at the same time shows Schindler being essentially given their yeah. apartment and all of their stuff you know and at that point he's still pretty thoughtless and he's just like oh this is the bomb look at this awesome place that i have now uh but at the same time it's following the people who gave up that apartment and are being shuffled off um so yeah i just i just uh really think structurally the movie really really works it, like again through through the depiction of those side characters like do you remember when we were watching empire of the sun and uh and i the said inferior world war ii film yes. yeah i said i wanted to see more about the side characters like i wanted mm-hmm. to get to know the side characters like i wanted a longer version of that movie just so i could have some insight into these people that we're seeing in the background in these very small roles this movie is the solution to that this movie gives us that like it establishes like a lot of people you know like the guy uh that you were talking about who's like running merchandise it follows Mm -hmm. him through the whole movie uh the mom with the little girl with glasses um you know what that little boy who ends up hiding in the toilets like there are these recognizable faces that it follows through these events just so you can be like "Oh, oh no it's Oh no, it's her. You know, like no, no, no. You know, uh, really, just. And I think the most so crucial good. of those is the the girl in the red coat, right? Yeah, the girl in the red coat, man. It is and I, rough. I was couldn't when I was watching it. What I remember, my brain being like, "Why is she in red? I don't understand." But it's just so you can recognize later when you see her a second time, you're like, oh shit, you know? And that to me is, that moment in the film is where Schindler kind of breaks. Like his resolve slowly breaks and he's sort of like, well, I'm not as heinous as the stuff they're doing. So he keeps profiteering, but he does kind of try his best, not his best, but he does try to kind of, you know, he slowly comes around, right? Yeah. And then at some point when, and I think when he sees the girl in the red coat the second time, is when his resolve completely breaks and he's like, okay, I'm on the wrong side. Yeah. And I need to get on the right side. I even think the moment where he's he's on the the hill with his girlfriend and they're on horses and they're looking down, that's the first time he sees the girl at the red coat. And it's during uh, 
the I don't know what you would call it the evacuation the clearing of the ghetto like the purge of, the purge yeah, yeah and it, like it's a hideous event like they are going through they're yanking everybody out of their houses they're they're like just shooting people flagrantly you know just that happens so much in the movie just for whatever you know um and there's mass chaos people are running everywhere there's blood all over the place people are dying people are screaming the nazis are just laughing you know and having a good old time you know it's a day at the park um and in the middle of it he sees this little girl in the red coat just kind of wandering through the chaos and and just lost by herself you know no adults around and and i think that that is the first the first turn that he takes like that's the first unlocking yeah because he's sitting there and he's watching this and he's kind of like oh shit like this this is what these people are dealing with like this is what my workers are going through you know um, uh, I should say, because we're saying it kind of in passing, but we say red coat because it's one of the few moments in the film that's in color. And she is red among a black and white background. Yeah. And, and I wanted to talk for a second, just like to kind of pull out of the story of the movie and so on, but uh, about the film technique here, because I never noticed it when I watched this on VHS, uh, because I was watching it on an old tube TV and the resolution wasn't high enough. But this time I was watching it on 4K Blu-ray. And, uh, and I don't, I don't know if this would have been noticeable in a theater either, but I think just in that resolution with the picture being, I, I was watching it on a, I don't know how big it was, 65 inch maybe TV. Um, the film grain is different mm-hmm. in the colorized scenes, which I had never noticed before, but, uh, the scene with the girl in the red coat, the scene where he sees her later in the red coat and the scene, uh, with the, the Jewish ceremony where they're lighting the candles and the candles are lighting up. There's a, he's using a different film there. And I was wondering if it was like, like a technical reason, like it was more difficult to colorize mm-hmm. uh, on the other film he was using. And so maybe he shot these parts on video and then like, pulled the color out like i don't know some some probably technical reason why it was done that way with the technology of the time but uh it's the first time i've ever picked up on that and uh it just is like a little grainier a little more pixely um i don't know just an interesting side note yeah so i have like i and i'm i'm guessing you maybe did more research um certainly than i did but uh is there we talked about how Spielberg wanted to do this movie and he was sort of like, you got to do Jurassic Park first. Yeah. And he went and did it and then finally got to this. Why? And I mean, it's kind of obvious why it's so important, but did he ever talk about that? Like, like why? Why Jurassic Park first? No, why Schindler's List even at all? Like what? I know why you had to do Jurassic Park first, because basically when you make the studio a billion dollars, you essentially are like, all right, go ahead and make what you want. Yeah, that, that's more or less what happened. The studio said yes to Schindler's List, but you have to make Jurassic Park first. Uh, and it wasn't like Jurassic Park was like something he didn't want to do, but that was part of the deal he cut. And the, the Schindler's List budget for like the scope and just the insanity of the size of this movie was relatively low. It was only like $22 million, which, you know, is a lot of money, but like... My God, some of these scenes have that's thousands how much they pay Robert Downey Jr. You know, that's a quarter just, of what just they pay to him to be Iron Man. Man. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, but anyhow, um, 
so there, there's the backstory of of the Schindler's List, like how it came to be, and just the short version is, okay, so the guy, the guy who was running goods in the movie, uh, the the one who gets confronted by the Nazis in the alley and salutes him and says, "Oh, I'm clearing the way so you can run through," you know that guy. Uh, he after the war in the eighties was working at an airport gift shop, right? Mm-hmm. He had the story, like the story of his life. And so every time a writer or a director came through the gift shop, he'd be like, I got to tell you this story. Like I, somebody's got to do this story. Right. So the guy who wrote the book Schindler's Ark happened through the gift shop, mentioned that he was a writer. That guy was like, ah, the story. And that guy bit. Like he's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's write the book. So that's how those two connected and wrote the book. Then I believe uh, somebody else read the book and brought it to Steven Spielberg back in like uh, 82 or 83. Spielberg loved it and was like, yeah, get the rights. Like, I want to do this. But he was only 35 years old and was like, I don't I don't think I have the maturity. Like, I don't think I'm, I'm ready. And so he just sat on it and kind of ruminated about it. And so then, like, when he hit a certain point in his career where he felt like he was ready to take it on, then he did. And apparently, uh, very difficult, very personally trying, exhausting. Um, At the same time that he was filming this in the day, he was doing special effects work by satellite on Jurassic Park at night. He had mm-hmm. rented he rented two satellites over Poland and was shooting special effects from Jurassic Park and like editing that movie via satellite uh, while he was filming Schindler's List and apparently you know it obviously probably took a lot out of him. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's kind of the backstory. Um, and and you know as far as like why this resonated with him, I mean your guess is as good as mine other than like the obvious, you know, his Jewish heritage and uh, you know, just the need to tell this story, which mm-hmm. once you hear the story, you can see why somebody would want to, you know, share it and make it more well-known. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, it, it seems obvious, you know, I was just kind of wondering if he had talked about it at all. Um, so, where were we? We were talking about the the red coat, and at this point they start purging the 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 ghetto of all the the residents there and start moving them into camps and separating children from parents and yeah, and more and more dehumanizing. You know, like I I think this is a thing that really happened, but the symbolism of it, like you would think this is something that they just did for a movie. I mean, but all, everything in this movie really happened. Like it was all, all real. Uh, so them tearing apart the Jewish graveyard and using the gravestones, like forcing the Jewish people to tear apart the graveyard and then using the gravestones to pave the road into the camp, you know, is uh, an atrocity, you know, it, it but Again, it is a thing that really happened in the movie. Like the movie just keeps piling atrocity on atrocity on atrocity um, until it, the characters are almost numbed to it. Uh, I, I mean, their reaction, they learn to control the reaction. I would never say that they're numb to it, but they learn right. to control their reactions because like it's, it's, 
the only survival mechanism that works you know um i'm thinking the the scene where stern is walking and the young boy had just been trying to scrub the uh the stains off the bathtub and goth says oh i pardon you i pardon you Mm -hmm. and then uh you know decides against it looks at his nails or whatever and decides against it and then you know s- snipes the kid in the street and uh he doesn't sh- actually kill that kid right he kind of snipes at him like a, oh no he kills like him a... he kills him because uh, stern keeps walking and then his body is laying in the road oh okay. and stern stern is so controlled in his reactions that he doesn't stop he doesn't flinch he doesn't look you know he just walks um and and similar uh, to the way the maid Helen uh, Helen Hirsch I think her name was yes but like she takes a similar approach like just no reaction can be the right reaction so I'm going to have no reaction you know and and you kind of see that as the movie progresses you know like they people internalize their feelings more and more and more uh, as these horrific things are kind of happening around them. Um, to to lighten it just a little bit, I want to talk about one, like early in the movie, there were a couple scenes of levity that made me laugh. Um, there's a scene where Schindler's wife is there and she's visiting or whatever. And it's like, hey, should I move here? And he's like, well, you know, it's pretty nice. And she goes, well, would I, can you promise me I'll never be missed or I'll always be called Mrs. Schindler? smash cut to him putting her on a train all right babe bye get out of here you know because he is living the bachelor life despite being married yeah womanizer to the end yeah like did i say to the end because at the end he stops but uh yeah throughout the entire film he is you know like he has one girlfriend who's around for a while but then she kind of disappears from the movie and other other women come to take their place uh but yeah like there are as heavy as this movie is, it's entertaining. Like, this is a good movie. Like, when you're right. watching it, like, there are moments of humor and lightness interspersed amongst the horror. One of my favorite scenes, <laughs> it's awful. It's awful, but it's a great scene. It's when Goth is out there and somebody has stolen a chicken. And he's got these people lined up and he's like, you know tell me tell me who stole the chicken and there's this guy walking behind him going tell him about the chicken save yourself (laughs) tell him about the chicken (laughs) it's a horrible scene but i'm sorry there is comic timing in that scene with that guy walking behind him like menacingly tell him about the chicken uh and then and then like he shoots somebody and a little boy saves everybody else by saying yeah. that's the guy that that shot the chicken you know and uh it's a very dark gag but it is a gag you know and and it is a lighter moment in the movie and it's used to illustrate how stern is choosing extraordinary people to try to save you know which is a hideous choice you know like a hideous position to be in but he is in this position where he's having to select people from the camp yeah. to try to bring into Schindler's factory to save. And so he picks that kid and it's kind of just illustrating why he chose that kid because he was so quick witted and bright that he saved all these people. Um, 
so yeah, there are there are moments of of levity and humor in the film and like in other pleasures in the film. I think Schindler and Stern's relationship is one of the pleasures of the movie. Like when those yeah. two are on the screen together, there's a warmth, especially in the second half of the movie when they both kind of realize, I think when Schindler realizes what Stern is doing and gets on board, you know, right. like because beforehand there's, there's a running not theme, but a running thing that happens where Schindler offers Stern a drink and Stern always refuses. Um, and then near the end of the film, you know, he accepts um, that drink and it just like kind of the, visual representation of him turning the corner and Schindler kind of on board. And now Stern's like starts to respect him more because until that point Stern realizes, Hey, this guy's just here for money and Stern uses his position to do the right thing and try to save the people he can. There is a running theme too. of You can't save everyone. Like you said, Stern's having to choose who to save, you know? Oh yeah. And it's, uh again horrible you know it's uh it it i say it's a sophie's choice because like sophie's choice has become such a integral part of our culture that people know what you mean when you say it's a mm-hmm. sophie's choice you know like like you have to select one person to live and another person to die and and that's the position he's in but stern is in his own way an opportunist like schindler is you know, he finds himself in this position. It's just that the opportunity he's taking is, you know, the purest and most good. He's going to save people because mm-hmm. he finds himself in this position where he can. And like first he's doing it on the DL, but they it becomes more and more obvious until Schindler finally confronts him about it. And it's like, why don't you they call this place a haven? Like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to get me killed and and. You know, through that conversation, they kind of quietly acknowledge to each other or silently acknowledge to each other. Okay, this is what we're doing. Like, this is what's going down. He gets on board. He hands over his watch. Like, okay, save save these people too. You know, um. So yeah, it's uh, oh, it's so good. It's so good, man. Yeah. So uh, we get introduced to Amon Goth, played by Ray Fines, who is. Th- the most evil man in the film, um, in a film filled with evil men. This dude, <laughs> this, this guy, brilliantly portrayed by Ray Fiennes. This is Just, one of those. This is one of those Henry Thomas Elliot level. This guy deserves a free ride for life for this role. Roles, you know, like yeah. Good God! I mean, I I can't even. It's so hard to even talk about this this guy like and he the, the performance it, it, and what it must have taken to like take on this role and he is magnetic too like the and i think that's just ray fines ray fines is a magnetic performer um but there's something about his performance that you kind of like you know what i mean like there's yeah not that you like okay. him or his actions but he is charismatic. Like, yeah. This is like, a, yeah. Okay. So interesting because I'm going to go ahead and, and say this now. I was going to, I I was saving this question to the end and I almost didn't put it in here because it's so loaded. But mm-hmm. 
the question was at any point in this movie did you empathize with goth was he is is the character portrayed as a human or a monster right and the reason i was asking it is because the character is so charismatic and and like there are moments of humanity in there you know and another question i was going to ask you is is this guy a pure psychopath you know like for, like a clinical psychopath um, i think he's i think he is a, a sociopath for sure um now you you talk about the human moments there are human moments where it's like you need you're gaining weight right and that's something we can all relate to um you know I think part of it is, is the motivations for him are clear other than uh, he's just a psychopath who loves killing and power. But it's, I think the character is so well written and balanced and nuanced where he can be swayed a little bit. Right. Schindler tells him, you know what power is power is pardoning someone when you, you know what I mean? And it kind of works a little bit. If he plays him. Yeah. He played, he plays yeah. psychological monkey games with him and uh and and to a point it kind of works he sees schindler as his friend right because there's a point where schindler gets in trouble for kissing a jewish woman and who saves him goth does goth's like no you don't understand he he likes women he didn't even know he's a player he just kissed her because she was a woman you know like and he has to save his friend because in Goth's eyes, Schindler is his friend. And I think that there's a portion of that that is reciprocated from on Schindler's side. Yeah. Yeah. To and a I wanna... degree, but you have to, he has to separate all the horrible stuff because he just has no there's no value in the people the Jewish people to him. Zero. They're bugs to him. And Yeah. So the human moments that I was thinking of, and I want to make it really clear. I'm talking about Goth, the character in the movie. I'm not talking about Goth, the real human being. Correct. Who, who was a, a despicable monster. Uh, and, and so I'm in no way trying to humanize this it's historic really Ray figure. Fine's performance. I'm talking about Ray Fine's performance as, as Goth in the movie. Uh, but the the human moment that I saw that that he seems to... I don't even want to say he struggles with it because that gives him too much credit, but he develops feelings for, for Helen, the maid. And like, I don't know. I don't know if this person is capable of feeling like love or true affection. It might just be more a need for possession, a lust, a lust situation, because I don't know if, if he's able to differentiate that from you know a love if he was being honest with himself he might say that he has developed a love for her but he would probably be wrong you know (laughs) because i don't think he does i think he he likes possessing her and controlling her um but that whole scene i mean it's clear from the onset that he's a madman but that scene where he has her pinned down in the basement and he's carrying on this one-sided conversation with her and he's behaving as though she's responding to him. Oh, you make a good point. Uh, and he's like, it's clearly just a nut job. But, yeah. uh, you know, that is a point where you can kind of see him 
wrestling between the Nazi ideology and the fact that this is a human being. And and he, he verbalizes it like, I know you're not really a person, you know, but, you know, I can't really think of you as a rat because look at you and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, I think that that's a really critical scene when it comes to that character, because then, of course, the choice he makes is for the Nazi ideology. You know, right. I, I he's unable to really. And of course, she's never going to reciprocate his feeling like ever. And so he just right. decides just to like beat her. And at the time, I thought kill her. Um, it turns out that she survives. But uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting I pulled this quote um, from Ray Fiennes about what it was like to play this. And this is from Slash Film. He says, I think there was a price to pay for this one. When you're investigating behavior that is uh, that negative so intensely for three months, then you feel sort of peculiar because you might have at moments enjoyed it. And at the same time, you feel soiled by it. It just throws up all kinds of question marks about acting, about human behavior, about how all of that is probably a lot closer to the surface than we like to think. Uh, then it says the reality of the production led to the unlikely situation of fines relating to the despicable character he portrayed. Quote, if you're playing a role, you are immersing yourself in thinking about that character, how he moves, how he thinks. In the end, he becomes an extension of yourself. You like him. A heavy price to pay for an important role in such a poignant movie. Uh, yeah. Like, shit, dude, can you imagine, like, the psychological toll that would take on somebody, <laughs> you know, like, making that movie? Like, good God. Like, not to mention the physicality of it. Like, he packed on all that weight, you know, and... uh was Hollywood fat. Don't, don't... I mean, he was not that much weight. Like... No, but it was noticeable. <laughs> like, it was noticeable. That's a couple there. trips to the buffet. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to take anything away from his performance, but it wasn't a huge sacrifice to eat Denny's to, well, for the role. You I know? will say for somebody who's as trim as he usually is, to pack on 35 pounds over a couple months, it's got to take a physical toll. Like You got to feel yeah. pretty bad. Like those of us who are overweight kind of gained that slowly over time, <laughs> like just to like pile it on so fast. It's got to be like, Oh God, like I feel terrible. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something about, it. but Oh, when you mentioned that, that he says, um, things are closer to the service than the surface than we would like to admit. I think that that is one of the things in the movie. There are so many, and it's not just goth is one of a bunch of people who are on board and having fun uh, at this time, you know, killing and the power, you know, there's all his subsidiary, you know, there's his people below him, you know, and he doesn't have a lot of people who are like, oh, maybe, you know, trying to do anything right. They're all kind of on board with being horrible and I think that he's right about maybe this is closer to the surface than we realize. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I don't know that it takes much for something like that to happen again, you know? Oh no, absolutely not. And just I, are, I haven't learned. I want to get into that in a bit, but I want to also say uh, this, this is interesting. The real life goth was way worse than the guy depicted in the movie. Huh. In fact, 
The real-life goth was so bad that he was charged with crimes by the SS. The Nazi party was like, whoa, dude, like, too far. Like that that's is shit. That's so, how bad he was. Like, okay, so listen to this. On uh, 13 September 1944, Goth was relieved of his position and charged by the SS with theft of Jewish property, which belonged to the state according to Nazi regulations, failure to provide adequate food to prisoners under his charge, violation of concentration camp regulations regarding the treatment and punishment of prisoners, and allowing unauthorized access to camp personnel record by prisoners and non-commissioned officers. So he was actually charged with crimes against he, the Jewish people by the SS. Like, okay. that's how freaking bad he was. But I have a problem with this, mostly because that feels like the, the Nazi party almost trying to save face a little bit because it's like, you didn't give them enough food. Let's ignore the fact that you killed a bunch of them, right? None of those were murder that he was being. Well, yeah, no, no. Uh, regarding the treatment and punishment of prisoners, violation. Okay. Of, yeah, yeah. So that was that's in there a too. blanket statement. Now, now that said, this was towards the end of the war that this happened, and what ended up happening was the war, the war was going poorly for the Nazis, and that things just fell apart, and so those charges were never brought to trial, and they were okay. they were eventually dropped, uh, and they ended up sending him to a sanitarium. Uh, because he was a nut job, and uh, that's where the U.S. soldiers found him uh, and pulled him out, and then he was tried for crimes and hung in Krakow. Interesting. Yeah, so that's him. Um, uh, it, it is interesting that this film about um, the the World War II and the Nazis, we never see Hitler. Um, Hitler's not even mentioned. Yeah. Like, there's two Heil Hitlers no, in, in the movie. Yeah. There's two uh, of those, but that's and then that's it. That's it. Yeah, um, and I I think that that kind of speaks to just this ludicrous bureaucracy that they had assembled. Like one of the really striking repeated images in the movie is all of them hauling their desks out into the courtyard, you know, and they put down their stapler and they put down their stamp and they put down the thing. And it happens mm-hmm. over and over throughout the movie. And every time it's like, Oh God, what are they going to do now? Like God, what, what dumb orders have they got now? You know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I can imagine like the people in the camps when they saw that, they were just like, Oh shit. Like what, what's going to happen now? And it always is like something horrible. Everybody yeah. getting naked and running circles. It's never and the good people news. that can't do it, we're pulling you out and sending you, you know, it's, it's always something just awful. But then like, it also very clearly illustrates like how many errors are made, you know, because the bureaucracy is so big and so unwieldy and the people behind it, you know, like are stupid and uncaring. Like they commit errors all the time, you know, and, and of course these are people's lives that, that they're taking through these errors, but like the train goes to the wrong place, you know, they put Stern on the train when he's not supposed to be like, like over and over again, you see this bureaucracy kind of break down and fail because it's so complicated and it's so unwieldy and, you know, paper driven and just shitty you know (laughs) but like they're all peace they're all cogs in this giant machine of murder and like it has very eventually little uh relation to i think the politics behind it or what what 
the driving forces behind it, they're just un well, I mean, I don't want to call them unknowing because they obviously know that they're committing heinous evil acts, but you know, like they're way down the line of command. Um, and so like Hitler doesn't factor into it other than right. like he's the driving force at the way at the other end of the bureaucracy, I, I, you know, I think too, what it kind of shows is how many people are on board and doing this, even though they're not being commanded to do so. Yeah. You know, it's that like goth and there's probably others who are just doing it because, hey, look at this control, what I have, the power and then, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And they're just doing it, you know. Um, so and I, I, I think that's part of it. This is like even though Hitler uh, deserves all the hate that he's received in history there are a lot of other Hitlers under him. There are a lot of monsters. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of monsters. Um, an interesting conversation I thought that takes place in the movie is the part where uh, Schindler is kind of mounting a half-hearted defense of Goth to Stern, which is interesting. And he's saying, like, if not for, like, there are parts of him that are okay. And if not for the war, he he could have been an okay person. I don't believe that's true. Like, I, I feel like if not for the war, he would have been a serial killer. Like, I think, like, this, yeah. this dude's just a nut job. Uh, but it did make me think of, like, it's it's kind of true of Schindler in the opposite way, right? Like, if not for the war, this guy would have never been heroic. You know, if, like, it, everything he's saying about goth that, you know, Goth would have been a good person if not for the war. Is is opposite of Schindler. Goth would have or hit Schindler probably would have just stayed a, a chode, you know, <laughs> if yep. not if not for the war. Like womanizer it him, and yeah, it changed him into a more uh, upright person, I guess. Um, yeah, is it took time. <laughs> like it, it, it took time. Yeah, it wasn't immediately like that's wrong. I'm gonna do the right. He's like he's haplessly you know naive and that's i mean that's one of the strengths of the movie i think is that he does not come in as a savior character you know like it is a slow transition and and you know you have to carefully watch to see these kind of ticking points as he's kind of sliding his meter over from you know profiteer to uh, I don't even know if we could even call him a hero at the end, but like, you know, like he's a savior he, in a way. Like he, he saves people. Yeah, he is a, a savior figure, and and because there like, is a very there is a point in the film where he gives up everything, almost everything. Like they they point out at the end with that tremendous scene that maybe he didn't give up everything, but it kind of. Uh, we'll get to that scene, but he gives up like he's not worried about making money anymore. Like when they get that last factory and they're making shells for artillery and eh, he's purposefully making sure they don't work. Right. And that's going to lose him money. He's not making money saving these people. He loses everything he's gained and he's willing to do that without a second thought. Even when Sturt is like, Hey, we're not going to make any money. He's like, yeah, so? <laughs> yeah, he, he ends up burning through all the cash, like right. all the cash between 
uh, like paying for the people, bribes, you know, uh, going and saving the, the women from Auschwitz. Like he burns through his entire reserves of, of cash, all the money that he made from the war. And, and uh, like at the end of the movie leaves a, a war criminal, a broke war criminal and goes on the run, um, which is, you know, fascinating in itself. Uh, but you're right. That scene at the end where he breaks down when he realizes like, had he been more thoughtful I and deliberate, I he could have done more. Sure. Um, I think, too, there's always... And it's kind of the tough thing is how many can you save? Like, and I don't even... Oh, maybe if I had sold my car and this ring was two more lives and the value is definitely in favor of the lives, right? Um, yeah, and there's this push and pull because, like he did need to maintain this appearance of being a Nazi and a Nazi sympathizer. Right. right. So like in order for the whole thing to work, he had to have the car. He had to have the pin. He had to like, like put on this show of being the guy that he started the movie as of, of still being right. that guy. And uh, like when he saves the children uh, near the end where he's like, no, these are, you know, he has to say, he has to grab the kid roughly and be like, look at his fingers. These fingers can fit in places that adult fingers can't. And I can't have, you know, you taking these children away from me. He has to put that on and purposefully be rough with that child to sort of put the show on of he doesn't care about the kids. He cares about money where yeah. the inverse is true. Yeah. Um, as a... Let me just ask you, like, as you were watching the movie, what what was your emotional state of watching this movie? I don't know what my emotional state was. I, I, I really was watching it, and I don't think it affected me in the same way it did the first time. Maybe it's because I knew it was coming, but I also remember it as dark and as violent as I remember in my memory it being worse like there's the Auschwitz where they all go into the shower and I remember my brain was like I didn't realize that it was just water in that scene yeah I thought that this was going to be like you thought I it was seem to remember more like horrible atrocities in a film filled with horrible atrocities I seem to remember the that scene going differently and I think to me, I was like, oh, oh, thank God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, whoo, uh, you know, he saves the, the, the women from Auschwitz. And I was like, it's just kind of interesting in that moment. It's this because that's the most notorious camp and that uh, they you only get this brief glimpse of it and the buildup of the shower turning on and the screaming of water hitting you you know and you're thinking it being one thing and then it's actually water and the scene being very effective but I, I i don't know that i had like a big oh this you know horrible you know it's like i i know it is i yeah i don't know it's I, hard there, to explain there's no there's no cathartic moment in this movie outside of maybe the the last scene which we can talk about um but, like, the reason I asked is because I was filled with a low-key anxiety 
the entire time watching this movie. I swear to God, my blood pressure went up like 15 points yeah. the whole time I was watching this movie. Like, I I guess uh, partially <laughs> because I'm older, partially because I have a, a greater understanding of the historic context. And I have to say this movie hit me really differently as a parent than yeah. it than it did before I had children, you know, which is the last time I saw it. Like as a parent, some of the scenes involving kids in this movie just hit me like a brick, man. Like I, I, whereas before I could conceptually relate with the horror of having your children ripped away uh on now I felt that on like a gut personal level, you know, like that like really upset me and impacted me, uh, you know, because I couldn't help but imagine my own children, you know, being taken away on those trucks and waving happily, you know, like they're going on a fun trip. Uh, Horrible, you know, and and like the use of the little girl with glasses, you know, kind of as the metaphor for the the rest of the children throughout the the movie. Um, Of course, I just zeroed in on that. You know, and every time she's imperiled, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. And the little boy who ends up hiding in the toilet, same thing, you know. Um, like, I just, uh, it really, really worked on me on that level. Like, just this low-key dread the yeah. entire time. Even during the parts where I was, like, you know, like, smiling and appreciating, you know, the the Stern relationship and, you know, Dylan Buzz Chicken and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh I still was just like unbelievable and and it's kind of I I kind of feel like in part it was because of what's happening in the film but also in part because of the way our country is right now and how to a certain extent I feel that all the time anyhow and this mm-hmm. ju- this movie just kind of focused that like a lens it focused my unease and uh nervousness and all of that you know like shooting it through a crystal and making a laser you know right because i do have that low-key anxiety all the time like i do like i'm i'm constantly worried about everything all the time like i'm worried about the political landscape i'm worried about sending my kids to school i'm worried about like i have like anxiety about everything on a societal level on a global level on an environmental level on a geopolitical level on a like a ground level in my neighborhood like i am anxious about everything all the time and so watching this movie just exacerbated that to such an extent you know like it it just really brought that yeah out of me and and uh so yeah i mean like it was an extraordinary experience i I don't necessarily know if it was extraordinary in like the positive way that people think of it uh but uh yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I think it's it's maybe like a reflection of just how bad our culture has gotten that that I'm looking at this movie now in such a different way than I did 25 years ago because now I'm looking at it like as opposed to oh it's horrible that that happened 
now I'm thinking thoughts like, oh, how the fuck are we going to keep this from happening again? Like, how how can we stop this? Like, what what can we do to stop this? Because on some level, on some deep gut level that I rarely acknowledge, I feel like we're heading that way. You know, like, I feel like our culture is heading that way again. And uh, it, it's, I don't know, it's so disturbing and uh well I don't know. so like this movie forced me to acknowledge it right you know like well, it forced me to acknowledge it the thing is genocide is already happening and currently happening and has been happening in various p- countries and every it, it's already happening um yes so i don't i think that the the difference here and this is going to sound bad uh, but it's also true is that this genocide was happening um, against white people in Europe. And the, the, that's why, you know, because it, there's genocide all the time in all other countries. In, it's always happening. And we, the, the government has to pick their battles, I guess, you know, and um, we don't put your nose in our business. But I, I obviously is on a scale that was different and um and i don't even know where i'm going with this but i i understand the uh feeling like we can definitely end up in the same place again and i think we probably are and and will be in a more um what's the word desensitized state i mean like we talk about shootings i mean i was listening to a podcast about uh movies it was actually about the chucky movies and one of them had to be changed completely along with like scream three because of the uh, columbine shootings yeah and things got shut down and changed and rearranged and the and the world was different afterwards and now it's like that happens and it's a tuesday um so I get that. Now, I think while you were talking about it, part of the reasons I think maybe I didn't have a similar experience is that I've worked really hard to not be anxious um, because it has been a debilitating problem for me. So I have a lot of safeguards in place that might even make the outside viewer feel like I'm heartless or whatever, but uh, I've purposefully put things in place to protect myself for my mental health, um, mental guards or whatever, or, you know, I can't fully explain it. And so I think when watching the film, I'm able to detach a little bit or empathize, detach a little to allow there's a way that my brain thinks. And when it starts heading off the track a little, I have to correct and I think the same way, that same safeguard I use through therapy and, you know, uh, everything keeps me from jumping, allowing myself to stray into um, fear uh, and anxiety a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, I could. I mean, that's <laughs> maybe something I should address in my life. Like in general. Well, when you're as, describing what you said, I'm anxious about this and that. And I'm like, whew, I've been there. I've been there. Um, yeah, it's like, true. I mean, like, like in, in life, I think that like one of the, my primary characteristics as a human being is that I am a raw nerve of empathy. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I, 
I look at anything and empathize, you know, and, and, and that's, uh, why this movie hit me as hard. And that's why like current events hit me as hard as they do. And because I, I instantly put myself in other people's places. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why I found the, the goth character so interesting because I was trying to like, get at Like, did I have empathy for this guy? You know, because like, I just do, I just have empathy for all the time. Like I'm just very willing, not willing just naturally do put myself mm-hmm. in other people's shoes in all situations, you know, and, and, uh, you know, like, I don't know. It's, it's a heinous way to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm not saying but there's a it, right or wrong way. Like makes, I can, it makes watching a movie like this, uh, difficult, you know, it, like, yeah. like really, really. And it's funny because I'm not usually sensitive to, uh, like horror movies, I can watch a horror movie like with no problem at all because like something in my brain uh, detaches that, you know, yeah. like, like I'm like, okay, this is not real, you know, so on and so forth. But if it gets, if it hones too close to reality, that's when it kicks in, you know, um, like if I like watching a documentary about, you know, the, the, Chechens taking over that school in Russia or watching like even watching the news or mm-hmm. and, and this kind of hit that mark like it, it it was too close to real for me uh, because in almost all of it was you know it was a right. dramatization of real events and so the entire time I'm just like kind of swimming through this dark pool of oh my god oh my god you know uh, I don't know interesting no I, I I'm with you and I was so I, I remember and I uh, seeing films that I talk about, I don't want to be disturbed when I watch movies. Like I just, I had to watch Requiem for a dream for a recent podcast. I, uh, I, there's a reason I've never seen clockwork orange. I just don't like being disturbed. And I think there's a part of me now that turns off that part of me. This is, I'm just not going to allow myself to be disturbed. And I think that, maybe affected this viewing. There's also part of me though, that is still very wide open to things, but I tend to, I think, allow in what I consider to be good things like, and this is kind of a hard right turn. The end of homeward bound gets me every time <laughs> when shadow comes over the hill. I'm like, dog, he's coming home shadow! every time. And I, I always have that part of me over, but there's parts where I'm like, like if I watch, um, a movie about someone abusing a dog. I, I just, I can't, I have to close that off. I can't feel that. I don't want to be that angry. I don't want to hurt. And so it's, it's a complex place that these movies put us in. Um, and I'm not saying one is right or correct, but it is uh, the difference as we both our human life experience have put us in very different places to experience it in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and movies like this do inspire complex emotions, and I guess the fact that they that it inspires emotions at all means that it is a successful film, and in this case, yeah. it's a like ludicrously successful film. You know, like uh, I I reviewed um, Scorsese's Silence for Movie Draft House, and there is a 
Amy Nichols is a, a big time reviewer, at least I think she is. I've heard of her stuff. And she talks about the violence and how dark and hopeless this world is. And I watched the film and I was like, no, he maintains his faith. There is hope that even if you have that grain of mustard seed of faith, that you can make it through. And I think that's, and I, I had to concede to someone who's not really a Scorsese fan. And I say, that's art. That's art. Where I can watch a movie and come up with a very different, positive way of things. Because I've, through years of therapy, trained my brain to be as positive as possible. Um, and someone else can watch it and see how dark and horrible the world is and you can watch schindler's list and think of all the atrocities and the terrible things but you can also watch the movie and say one person just doing what they can can save you know people and there is hope at the end you know that even though everything is really dark it it, it can still work out and if you do what you can as a person you can find that and i i mean i just i that's what i like about it well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, in the end, the theme of the movie is, you know, that that hope survives, you know, even a small spark of hope in a hurricane of darkness uh, it's, that can carry through and have a and, huge and lasting impact on, you know, the and world. it's represented by the candle when they go to do their worship service. Um, Schindler goes up to the rabbi who's working in the factory. He goes, he's like, it's Friday, right? And he's like, yes, sir. And he goes, well, sun's almost down. And so if you don't know, the Sabbath starts Friday sundown and ends on Saturday sundown. And there's supposed to be a day of rest and worship. And so he's like, shouldn't you be preparing for the Sabbath? And, you know, a really great scene of just Schindler showing that he knows about their culture and cares about them being able to do this again. And they go and have their worship service and they light the candle and it's in color. You can see the orange and yellow flame. And it's right where the movie starts to get bright again. Like the, the Nazis are losing and things are turning around. And, um, you know, I love that scene a lot. Um, yeah. And you also get to see the reaction of the Nazis and like they're conflicted in overhearing the, the, uh, you know, the Sabbath celebration. I'm not sure what the proper term is for it, but, you know, the ceremony going on in, in the right. next room. It reminded me of uh, Raiders when uh, Dietrich says, I am uncomfortable with this Jewish ritual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting too, because in a way, Schindler kind of saves those Nazis in that camp too. Like, uh, just he forces them not to commit atrocities right and i think that line that he has at the end is very telling like you can go home to your families as men or you can go home as murderers and they choose to just turn and leave and not yeah not you know commit this gigantic act of horror um and you know like in in so much as they could be redeemed uh you know by making that choice uh, he uh, Schindler forced them into <laughs> into being decent human beings for a moment, you know. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, he gets one thing I I didn't remember at all was them pulling. So there's one of the 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 members that works for him has gold teeth in the back of his, and everybody's going up to him. Thank you, thank you. 
I'm like, what the heck? Thank you. Thank you. And they rip his gold teeth out, <laughs> melt it down and make a ring and um, to give to Schindler and show their gratitude. And it's a, the last scene in this movie, even though it's not technically the last scene, it's like the one of the last scenes in black and white where they're gifting him the things that we've writ we wrote this note as a way to hopefully, you know, the the allied forces will recognize that you were an ally to the Jewish people. They're trying to do what they can to save him now. And that flip in that moment of now we're trying to save you, um, was really great. And then that's when he has his breakdown about what else could I have done? How many more could I have saved? And, you know, probably no one else in history has saved as many as he has, you know, thousands. There's that, you know, amazing stat at the end of the film where it's like there are less than 4,000 Jews living in Poland today. And the amount, the, the lineage from the Schindler Jews is higher than that. Yeah. You know, there's thousands and thousands of, of Jews now alive because of the acts of, of Schindler. Um, that's just sort of amazing. Yeah. How did, uh, how did you feel about the last scene in the movie where they come Loved in? It. I'm so happy they did that. I like so you get the black and white scene of the actors playing Schindler's Jews and then it turns to color and it's the the real life people standing next to some of the actors um going to honor Oscar Schindler at his gravesite and I read that he's buried on a, a Jewish plot of land a very sacred piece of ground I as I understand it um that is an honor that's not really reserved <laughs> for gentiles much less former nazis so it is a very high honor that they've given him um to be buried where he is and they come and they lay their stones which is a jewish tradition i've been to a jewish funeral and was asked to do that um so that is very much uh, a lot of times they have you write on those stones a message to the person who is in the grave now i don't know if they did that in this scene but what the, the funeral i went to they asked us to do that. Um, and so I, seeing the real people getting like, there's one of the, it's like, this is the girl that Schindler kissed. And you're like, that's the real person that this happened to. It just brings home the movie. It takes it from being um, a brilliant piece of historical art to being real and showing you the actual people that Oscar Schindler saved. Um, it takes it to the next level. I agree. I, I remember when I was younger, uh, I kind of had a, like this Lord of the Rings, uh, like this movie has a lot of endings feeling, you know? Uh, but now Listen, a, as an adult, you know, like, I'm like, oh shit. Like definitely, uh, worked much better for me. And of course, you know, I was probably drunk. But <laughs> yeah, probably. Also, Side note, I'm a big fan of every single one of the endings in Lord of the Rings. I oh, did dude. not regret it. Three oh years God. of film, and you wanted it to just end? No, <sighs> I wanted resolution to all the characters. I needed to know that Samwise is okay, and that... Uh, yeah, I'm I want, a big I fan I want to make it clear, like, I am not a bandwagon person on this. I literally sat in that theater like, oh, 
my God, when will this end? Like, <laughs> oh, I loved it. I didn't want it to end. It was a real world reaction. I think I saw it on opening night. And I I, people like... laughed in my theater. I saw it opening night, a midnight showing. <laughs> And people laughed when the next scene would come on, like it would fade to white. Oh my god! And the then Hobbit another pillow scene fight. Would I love like that whole thing. Oh, listen, my god, it's so bad. I loved it, <laughs> bro. Bro, this is you being another old codger again. Loved it. So good. Keep all the endings. I could have done with a few more. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> um. Yeah. So it's Schindler's List. I mean, what else do you say? I think it's. In an important piece of cinema, I think it does exactly what it needs to do. It doesn't come off as artsy, and even though it's filmed in black and white and very artsy, but it doesn't come off as much. You know, it's very much the human tale of the people, and um, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a it's an interesting. It's I don't want to call it a populist piece of entertainment, but it is a piece of entertainment that could be enjoyed by anyone, right? Like it's not. It's not something that people should look at and be like, I don't know if I want to sit through this. Despite everything I just said about my own personal anxiety, uh, like as as just a movie, it is a banger of a movie. You know, yeah. like like it is it's really uh, well crafted, well acted, you know, just a, a stunning piece of of entertainment along with everything else that comes along with it. Um so yeah, if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend setting aside a night or two or a long afternoon and get the kids out of the room, uh, and and give it a shot. Yeah, and there's, I mean, again, you can't overstate how good Ben Kingsley and Ray Fiennes are in this movie. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they're stunning. Ben Kingsley in particular is unrecognizable to me there were moments where i'm like this guy looks familiar why do i know this guy i like to me i didn't because I, I guess i'm always used to being kingsley being bald um and having a goatee and he has neither here he has hair and no goatee um and so when i looked at, i'm like that looks like ben kingsley i looked it up like it is and but he's really really good yeah he this is the movie that i think locked ben kingsley in for me like that's this is the movie where i was like okay i know that guy now you know like yeah. like uh, uh before that like i had never seen gandhi which is probably his best known role before the question is have you seen gandhi too what is gandhi too is that real oh no, it's from UHF, the <laughs> oh. Weird Al movie. <laughs> Got to get that UHF no reference in there, man. Passive Resistance, <laughs> Gandhi 2. Come on, man. We got to watch UHF. Love that movie. It would fit. There's a parody of Raiders right at the beginning. Have you seen UHF? God, yes, for the 90th time, yes. Seen Have you seen it? it? I've Have seen you it, seen yes. UHF? You got to watch it. It's good. I'll ask you next week. It's the only Schindler's List uh, podcast in history where we discuss UHF. I love you. All right, uh, I think we're I think we're good to wrap. Like most of my questions, you, uh, we we talked about uh, yeah through through the context of the of the show. So I don't want to I don't want to beat a dead horse. Uh, it was uh, a fascinating experience. Uh, where, just before we wrap, uh, where do, where does this sit in your rankings? Does this impact your rankings at all? I mean, have you been considering your rankings on a weekly or no? Um. Not on a weekly. I mean, I certainly have bottom. I've actually been considering the bottom more thoroughly than the top because I'm like, woo, that was crap. Um, it just exactly where Empire of the Sun is going to land in that bottom five. But for me, 
I kind of almost feel like this is outside of being able to be ranked. And I guess in a lot of ways you could say, well, then it should be number one. But it almost feels unfair because the subject matter and how important the movie is to try to compare it to anything else. How do you compare this to E.T.? How do you compare this to any of his other films? Yeah, but when we do our rankings, you're going to have to I'm going to have you can't, to. You can't just skip it. You can't just I be know, like, it, it was so but, important, we're just going to skip it. <laughs> yeah, but it almost feels like if you put anything above it, it's like, really, Jeff? Above Schindler's List, you know how important this film is? And if, like, if I'm like, at the end of the day, Jurassic Park is better than Schindler's List, people are going to be like, wow. That you suck. You're right. Because it, I'm going to watch Jurassic Park a billion times in my life. I may never watch this movie again. And it, I, it's just because of the, the heaviness of the content. But you obviously, where do you do you have it? Is it your favorite? Like, is it outdone Jaws and E.T.? I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, after watching it last night, I kind of thought to myself, ooh, number one with a bullet, you know, like, uh, yeah, it it'll be interesting to see where it does fall. In I my have final a feeling rankings. it won't make my top five. Oh, just it's be- definitely going to be in my top five, uh, I, and it's like, not again, not because of the quality of the film. It's just my top five is starting to get really interesting because there's stuff in there I didn't expect, like the color purple, you know, like which I have loved traditionally, loved throughout my life, but just hadn't considered it in the context of the other movies, you know. Um, Et and Jaws are definitely in there. Close Encounters is way the hell out, even though I thought it might be in there. Like, now, consider it. No, it is definitely not, you know. Um, but, yeah. But we both agree on last place. 1941? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for Hands sure. down. It's just awful. So far. So far. Yeah. <laughs> AI is coming up. Um, on that going note. Back. Yeah, so what are we doing? So, we're, uh, we're next, we're going to go back. To Isla Sorna or whichever other island it is. Isla Nubar? Isla Nubar. Uh, we are going to watch The Lost World. We're going back to Jurassic Park. I think we're going to try to bring Elliot in on this one, right? Yeah, we've got our Malcolm's coming back as is Elliot um, to, to just watch another fun, light piece of entertainment. Um, and you can... Get in touch with the podcast at Spielberg Chrono on Twitter and let us know, like, do you understand where I'm coming from when I'm saying this movie, it's kind of hard to rank against everything else because of the subject matter? Yeah. It's how funny. do you <laughs> we've had how that do Twitter you account say, for like two months and we've never mentioned it on the podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't I don't I don't I just can't I can't rank it. I guess you know what movie's going to be surprisingly high. What's that? Something evil, you know. But um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to get in touch with us, check the links in the description. He's at Eric underscore Hotter on Twitter. I'm at uh, Podcast by Jeff. Check out the Gaming Nexus for all your gaming reviews, uh, where you can read his controversial review of Saints, Saints Row. Row. God, what a I, bunch of haters! My, I'm so God. excited to play it because. I loved Saints Row 3, and it got mixed reviews. Like, I remember being like, yeah, it's not that great. I'm like, I love Saints Row 3, so I'm looking forward to it. It's funny uh, because, like, I've I've taken a lot of heat for certain reviews I've done. Uh, 
but it, this is the first time I think I've ever taken a heat for doing one that was too high. Like I got heat yeah. for giving control a seven and I had to like justify that. But this is the first time that I've ever like really, really enjoyed a game where people are like, you're an idiot. You have no brains. Like, God damn, I just thought it was fun. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and it is fun. It's it's I love I haven't played the new one yet, but I'm taking your word over everyone else's because you enjoyed three probably as much as I, I did. did. I loved it. I loved it. And yeah. that, that plays a lot into it is that I just love the Saints Rose games. You know, and so I was just delighted to have a new one to play, you know. Also, Anyhow. the only Schindler's List podcast to talk about Saints Row. Um, <laughs> you can check out my other podcast, The Movie Draft House. And I think that's it. So we'll be back in two weeks. We're not doing a bonus. We'll be back in two weeks for the land before. T- no, no, no. Nope, we could. We could do that as a bonus, but uh, it's a Spielberg. We'll hold off. Okay. We'll hold off. <laughs> I do love that movie. Sharp Me too. Tooth is awesome. Um, one of the scariest villains in any cartoon. Uh, but anyway, we're going to watch The Lost World. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye.